Campbell Valley in northeastern Colorado near the Wyoming border is one of the most majestic and quintessentially western places you could ever hope to see. But a closer look reveals a damaged landscape scarred by misuse and neglect. More than a century ago, while construction of an irrigation canal languished, the gently meandering Campbell Creek was used to transport irrigation water. The spring-fed creek with estimated flows of 1 to 3 CFS was deluged with flows of 80 to 100 CFS for eight years. The water pushed heavy sediment loads downstream, carved the creek down by as much as 50 feet, and widened it by 100 feet in places. In 2009, the Nature Conservancy purchased the nearly 17,000-acre Roberts Ranch at Campbell Valley and partnered with several groups to restore the land. One of those groups was Wildlands Restoration Volunteers, a Colorado nonprofit that deploys thousands of volunteers to work on more than 100 restoration projects each year. Ten years after the Campbell Creek project began, Wildlands Restoration Volunteers, in partnership with others and with the help of scores of its dedicated volunteers, has transformed Campbell Creek and repaired much of the damage done to the landscape. Today, we'll talk with WRV Program Manager Nate Boschman about the Campbell Valley Project and also with his fellow Program Manager Will Veith, who will soon begin urgently needed restoration work on the 280,000 acres of land scorched by the worst wildfire in state history. Nate and Will will share their thoughts on the success of their resilient organization, the challenges of nonprofit work, and the impact WRV has had on the land and on people's lives. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Aquapod, where we share water monitoring stories from the field. I'm Helen Taylor with InSitu. And I'm Eric Robinson, InSitu's Application Development Manager for Surface Water. And today, we're looking forward to a conversation with two leaders from Wildlands Restoration Volunteers, Program Manager for Trails and Habitats, Nate Boschman, and Program Manager for Rivers and Forests, Will Veith. These two not only bring their expertise to a field that involves hydrology, ecology, forestry, habitat recovery, and so much more. But they also understand what it takes to manage a small army of volunteers and make the hard choices when it comes to deciding which projects to pursue, whether it's addressing decades of damage like that done to the Campbell Valley or a recent catastrophe like the Cameron Peak wildfire. Yep, they've got a lot to tell us. So Nate and Will, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. Thanks, Helen. You bet. Nate, let's start with you. Maybe you could just give us a brief overview of the organization. Sure. We've been around since 99. Started out a very small organization based out of Boulder um, and mostly doing work like revegetating along creeks in Boulder County. But have in the meantime grown uh, to an organization with over 4,000 active members and uh, accomplishing well over 100 projects per year. By the volunteer numbers, we're the largest organization of our kind in Colorado. Organizations that that do this kind of of conservation work with volunteers. So Nate, I know we're really lucky uh, in Fort Collins that we have one of your facilities down the street from us. And, you know, being in Northern Colorado, you have a facility and and you got started in Boulder. But for everyone else who might be listening, what is really the crux of the work that you guys do over at WRV? What are you guys trying to usually accomplish? Well, we have two cruxes. As our name implies, um, we do restoration work. We want to improve um, the landscape in which we live um, and protect it and restore the damage that that we as humans have brought to the landscape we live in. But we also have volunteers in our name and and volunteers are equally as as important building this community of, of educated and engaged volunteers. It's its own mission, but it also supports the first half of our mission. Uh, we couldn't do this kind of work just as staff members. There, there are so few of us, um, and it takes a lot of hands to get this kind of work done. So the more educated and engaged and the more times those people come back as part of a community, the better quality and the more work we get done. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm always amazed to see the numbers that, that you guys are able to promote as far as the number of volunteers that come out to work with you. Um, having done a little bit of work with, with volunteer organizations in the past, I know that can be a bit of a challenge sometimes to get, to get folks to come out. How many people do you usually see per year coming out to help you? Do you have any gauge for that? Yeah, I mean, we, we track those numbers. Unfortunately, we don't track exact, we don't track individuals 
as well as we track number of volunteer days. We have folks that come back year after year after year to, to be involved in our in our, our work, and that's really what makes WRV possible. Uh, I mean, if you look at the numbers, just you know, the number of hours we put in each year, that doesn't really tell the story. The story is all these folks who have adopted WRV as their as their community. Um, it's folks like that that come out and you know, some some people just come out for a day or a half day project and, and may never come back again. But um, we have at least one member of our community that is, if you look at his hours, he, he's almost worked a full time job in, in 2020 <laughs> with WRV. Um, this is the person without a stitch of pay yeah yeah this is the person with with like blood donation that's way into the gallons (laughs) (laughs) so nate what is your role sure um i'm currently the let me try to get this right the trails and habitats program manager i manage the trails program which is our, our largest individual program um and within that program we do Mostly trail construction and um, and maintenance. Um, we have um, developed a name for doing very high quality work. And because of the origins of our organization in restoration, we have a, a restoration approach that we bring to all of our trail design and construction. Um, so while we do consider the, you know, the fun of a trail, you, ha- you have to in order to keep people on it. We are mostly considering the effects to hydrology and habitat and sensitive species uh, when we're doing the design and construction. And that's all over so, Colorado, is that correct? Yeah, um, and into southern Wyoming as well. Okay. A lot of our work is in the Front Range. That's where the bulk of our volunteers are from. But we do trail work down in the South San Juans, uh, we have an upcoming project near Glenwood Springs. Uh, we'll be starting the reconstruction of the Hanging Lake Trail over there. We're all over the place. Cool. And, and Will, let me bring you into the conversation here. Can you just tell us a little bit about what your role is at the organization and, and the type of work that you're doing in that role? So I am the Forestry and Watershed Program Manager. And so similar to Nate, all of our program managers, um, I mean, it's a lot of relationship building and uh, seeking just to get work uh, up and running. Uh, What I focus on specifically um, is mostly uh, river restoration projects. Like we've done a bunch on the Big Thompson and on the Pooter um, in recent years. And then I also run the uh, forestry work, which does fuels reduction um, kind of trying to prevent wildfires um, from being quite as severe. Get a bunch of scruffy guys with chainsaws out into the woods uh, having fun. <laughs> That's great. And gals. Yes. yes right. <laughs> no, I saw those pictures of them. <laughs> those They're saws. scruffy too. <laughs> yeah, they are. <laughs> and Will, uh, I'm sure we're going to talk about this quite a bit today, but with the with the really historic fires of the last year here in Colorado, I imagine that you guys have been fairly busy with your forestry work and the consideration of what that means to the rivers and the riparian zones. Absolutely. Um, I don't know uh, how how closely uh, you all are tracking it, but the Forest Service just um, is wrapping up like their main assessment of damage, the uh, burned area emergency response analysis. Uh, which then launched the soil impact analysis, uh, which is then being tossed off to a consulting group where they're going to look at um, feasibility and uh, potential benefit of uh, restoration sites um, throughout uh, the Cameron Peak fire and and other fires in the area. Um, And then once we've got uh, that kind of matrix worked out, uh, we're going to go in and we're going to rank suitability for restoration work on pretty much every stream in the uh, Pooter watershed. Yeah, we're still we're still in fun seeking mode right now. And everything got shut down because of snow and winter and frozen ground and everything. But we are looking at uh, March to start picking sites and uh, getting people and boots on the ground. Wow. So I would imagine this is something that for all of the really challenging effects that major fires have like this, I would imagine it also benefits you in that 
people are going to come out and support the work that you guys are doing through their volunteer hours? Absolutely. Um, flyers, we've, we've definitely learned in recent years, um, they will galvanize people. And I think that's, that's kind of what I really like about Wildlands Restoration Volunteers. Um, we have that dual mission that Nate was uh, talking about. Like we do restoration work, but we're also like clued in on getting communities out there. And then after, you know, evacuating from my house multiple times um, after the Cameron Peak fire, like I, I certainly understand that you can feel kind of powerless um, mm. in the face of big, scary stuff. And then, yeah, getting those volunteers out there so that they get a sense of agency, like they can actually go and um, do something about this stuff, uh, I think is, is really cool. Are most of your volunteers coming to you with some experience um, in this type of work, or is there a lot of training involved? Uh, we we have what's called the uh, Wildlands University uh, training uh, every year. Uh, so it's a smattering of uh, ecological principles, but then like, you know, how to swing a pigmatic and, and move dirt and things like that, you know, like the real hands-on stuff. So we, we tend to train our crew leaders um, uh, through that, that mechanism. And then we kind of let the crew leaders disseminate that information uh, further along. So you might have a crew of five people and one trained leader, and then they'll go and they'll work with the less trained people. Another interesting part of this, and I'd like to get your take from both of you on this, is that you also work with a lot of partners, is that correct? And big ones, like the Nature Conservancy and Colorado State University. Nate, maybe we can start with you and you can talk to us a little bit about, you know, how those work and how essential they are to your work. Yeah, I'm, we could not do this work alone. And so as a nonprofit, we are we are funded through our partners uh, with grants and fee-for-service work for partners and pass on work to our other partners. And some groups have one expertise and, and others bring others. Um, after the, the High Park fire, uh, which really got the Fort Collins office up and running in 2012 to 2013, it was just too big of a task to do by ourselves. And so we were working with the Nature Conservancy and trees, water, and people, and the county, and, and city of Fort Collins, and, um, and and many others to coordinate this kind of work. And, and that is it's kind of the, that's the, the, what we're coming back to now. Uh, and one of our closest partners is the Coalition for the Poudre River Watershed that stemmed from that original group of, of partners uh, responding to the High Park fire. And then you know, we're not the only trail builders out there. There are, there are lots of other groups that we work with that bring their expertise. You know, the local mountain bike group comes out on our projects if they have a mountain bike component to them um, and bring their, their points of view and their expertise and their passion for moving big rocks around. And then we get Poudre Wilderness volunteers and, and, and their expertise and their, and their passion for building bridges and, and doing more carpentry-related uh, uh, types of projects on, on on our work. It's just not something we can do ourselves. No no one group has all those expertise and and the volunteers with the passion to do it. And that's part of it too, isn't it? Is that in a community like ours where you have people who are out in the wilderness uh, using it in all different ways is they're bringing their particular perspective and passion to the work. Hmm. Yes, absolutely. And without that, we wouldn't get the work done that we get done. Fortunately, you know, initial interest and passion brings folks in and then they stick with us. And uh, after the High Park fire, we we had the largest influx of volunteers that WRE has ever had in, in one season after that fire. And many of those folks stuck around after the post-fire work was done, got trained in other skills and leaderships. And, and now there are many of them are our leadership base that are helping us to do trail building projects and erosion control work and now going back to fire and, and river work again. And, and Will, what's your perspective on those partnerships? 
Um, I mean, I was taught early on while studying ecology that restoration is a team effort. I can go out in my backyard and plant some trees or cut some trees down or, you know, muck about. But these big efforts that are so important and impact the larger community, it takes so many people to to execute them, to plan, to fundraise, to coordinate, to do everything. Um and yeah, uh, we we wouldn't exist without our partners, um, and they are fantastic people to work with. Do you see there being something where there are more organizations sprouting up like yours, or is this kind of a thing where it's it's been the same group for quite a while? No, I mean, there are many other organizations with similar missions around the country that do work that we do, although we hear often that when our volunteers have moved away that they wished they had one in their particular area and, and, and long for that kind of engagement again. But um, especially in, in, you know, higher density population areas, we, you know, these groups pop up because there is a need for them. And once momentum is there, it really grows into a movement. It's um, always um, struck me though, like what, how, how remarkable it is that, you know, we exist like we do because I don't know, having moved across the country and been to all these different spots, like there aren't that many places in the U S that I think this model would really work well, like Northern Colorado and the front range, like, you know, there's just that special sauce of engaged people who love being outside and aren't afraid to, you know, get their boots dirty and, and get out there and work together to do all of these things. Like I worked a bunch in, you know, the Chicago region and um, yeah, like if you weren't getting paid for, for doing this, uh, <laughs> people just <laughs> less willing. Huh? Crazy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We had a, a, a brief moment in our history. Where we attempted to open a branch office in Montana and tried to stoke the flames there for a couple of years before they finally just fizzled. There just wasn't, we never reached that critical mass where it was self-supporting and that, that escape velocity needed to make that happen is tough to get to and, and the components all have to be there. Let's transition a little bit to the project in specific that, that we wanted to talk to you guys about today. And that's the Campbell Creek project. Nate or Will, could you guys give us a little bit of background into what the project was, where it is, and kind of the state of things when when you got involved? Yeah, I guess I'll, I'll address this one. I was uh, initially hired because of the, the Campbell Creek project uh, in 2010. Uh, the project had started in 2009, um, but they realized how, how big it was and that they would need more support staff-wise in order to, to really get meaningful work done. So I, I was brought in to, to primarily manage that project. And at the time, this was a, a recent acquisition by the Nature Conservancy as a conservation easement. Uh, the ranch is about 17,000 acres, and it all, almost all gone into this easement. Um, and, and as part of the easement, the ranch was asked to support and participate in restoration efforts. And so one of the, the, the hurdles was the Nature Conservancy didn't have large crews of people to do restoration work. Um, and one part, one pasture on the ranch, the Campbell Valley pasture, needed a substantial amount. Uh, and so they brought us in, having worked with us in the past um, in some of our Boulder area projects, um, to mobilize the, the volunteer work. And, th- you know, they had considered just you know, hiring a contractor with a bunch of heavy equipment and and regrading the entirety of the Campbell Valley and, and reseeding. But, you know, the heavy impacts of that kind of of approach as well as the cost made it made it less desirable. And so they, they were looking into alternatives that were lower impact, maybe a little slower acting, but also lower risk. Nate, what was the issue? Yeah, so the the Campbell Creek and Campbell Valley had a series of issues, the the first of which being when the North Poudre Irrigation Canal was being constructed in the late 1800s and early 1900s, they ran into a a lot of both financial and logistical issues and and had gotten behind. Um, And actually, the effort went bankrupt several times. And 
by the time the the North Poudre Irrigation Company came on board and and bought into this project, it was in financial trouble, and they were they they came in to to rescue it. What they had to do in order to start you know start showing some successes was use a natural drainage in order to move irrigation water while they were completing the rest of the canal. Um, and so Campbell Creek was that natural drainage. So they diverted water from the canal into the creek. Um, they actually plowed a, cha- a channel adjacent to the creek because they wanted to channelize it somewhat uh, and released the water. And, you know, this was a creek that spring fed, you know, through our measurements uh, in part with the help of, of equipment from in situ, you know, the, the creek is, flows one to three CFS of its own accord. And here they were pushing 80 to 100 CFS down this drainage uh, for about eight years, uh, eight, eight growing seasons. That event cut the creek down in some places by as much as 50 feet. And you know we don't have the ability to go back and look at the evolution of the creek over the last hundred years. We just, we know what it was from early observations when they were doing the land surveys in the area. And we know what it was in, in the you know, early 2000s when we, when we came on board. But in between, it had substantially stabilized. It was, it's now, you know, no more than 40 feet deep at any given place, but it's about 100 feet wide, this new lower uh, floodplain, um, and still has some unstable spots. Uh, and now the rest of the landscape is trying to adjust to this new lower level. So lots of head cutting, lots of, um, because of this, these head cuts, uh, a great deal of sediment transport within the creek. And that's what what our primary objective is to reduce the amount of sediment and and really soil lost by by this pasture. The approach they chose to take was this less invasive approach where we would do smaller scale structures over time with volunteers, a bit of adaptive management approach where we would try things on a small scale, see how they work. If they work, scale them up. If they don't, abandon them. And it's been an incredible learning experience. both for you know me as a staff member, us as a volunteer community, but but also because we've engaged so many other partners in this, the entire conservation community in our area. And and Nader will, if you guys could tell us kind of visually what those structures that worked looked like, because and and maybe to another degree, for those of us that have been able to see where this is, the landscape itself is so striking. It's such. A, a really amazing place to see. What stands out to you when you when you get there? Like, what what is it that that you see when you showed up, and you know what does it look like now, and how has it changed? Well, when I when I first showed up in the Campbell Valley, this was shortly after my interview, um, and my interview consisted of a few you know regular questions, but then also my to be employer asked me what what would you do to fix a gully, and. So I drew him a picture of a gully and talked about increasing infiltration and putting in a series of check dams and the kind of spacing one would do. In my mind, I'm thinking, you know, the kind of gullies I've seen everywhere else during my education and and, and career. And then he pulled me out to the edge of this 40-foot dirt cliff in Campbell Valley and said, this is your gully. It was a little overwhelming. So my first impressions were, 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 were... a bit clouded by my thinking of what the heck have I gotten myself into here? <laughs> yeah. That amount but, of, of what's next. kind of yes. <laughs> What is next? And, and do they really think I can, I can do anything about this? And then, you know, we just started learning, but when you first get to Campbell Valley, what strikes you is its beauty. I mean, it is absolutely stunning in part because of the, you know, the damage that occurred, it gives it a character that it, it, it's hard to describe, but it, it, you know, it gives it, it's kind of this Western character that, that you would, when you think about this landscape, it, it, it's, it's iconic of the Western landscape, which unfortunately means that our Western landscape has a lot of damage in it. When they moved me into the role of managing the trails program, I said, okay, but I'm keeping Campbell Valley. <laughs> because it was meaningful to you? Yeah, uh, it, it had been dominating the, the last seven years of my life, and I couldn't imagine just passing that off to somebody else. Sorry, Will. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm keeping it. 
Well, what have you been um, doing there? Can you talk to us a bit about the monitoring program and the progress and the work you've been doing? Sure. Well, I, I need to introduce this, the second part of the issues out there, and that's that even after this first event in the early 1900s, you know, the, the impacts from the canal have not been done away with. Um, canals are notoriously leaky. And in this case, the canal goes through um, a lot of limestone substrate, which, as we know, limestone becomes not stone anymore when exposed to water. And so many channels have formed through the, uh, in, in the subsurface, uh, through the substrate, um, and it's incredibly leaky. Um, what is one to three CFS naturally, you know, we've seen a, a, as high as 12 CFS be, because of, of, of the leakage from, from the irrigation canal. So there's the creek that needs to be repaired, and, but then there's the canal that leaks. Is that correct? Yes, and, the, and yeah. the creek is, and the hydrology of the entire area is affected by this, this leaky canal. But by not only the original event related to the canal, but also the ongoing leak and, and a couple of subsequent breaches, unintentional breaches of that canal that, that did damage over the years. So the landscape really owes its character to, you know, our moving water around uh, to promote farming and settlement of, of the area. And we don't want to, you know, that's, that's important. We, none of us would be here if uh, if that wasn't made possible in the early 1900s. Um, but we're trying to reduce the, the negative impacts of that kind of, of landscape scale plumbing that, that we like to do. So our role is to try to reduce those impacts. Uh, we don't have any control over the leak, leak itself. We, we, we do work with the irrigation company. We have talked to them and provided them data to encourage them to reduce the leak or stop the leak. And, and they have done in in, in recent years, a, a fair bit of work to try to reduce that, the amount of flow that they're losing. Um, but we probably will never completely stop the leak unless they run it through a pipe. Uh, and that's a very expensive proposition. And my so, understanding is, is that they're less concerned because they recoup most of the water further down anyway, right? So it's not like a lost yeah, resource. I mean, the original damage occurred because they ran the water, took a shortcut, which you know, connected at the bottom with their infrastructure. Um, and so that is still there. And then water that escapes above Campbell Valley, they just recatch below Campbell Valley and it goes right back into irrigation infrastructure, maybe with some more sediment. Um, and they have lost several um, reservoirs to the, you know, the sediment from Campbell Valley. Uh, so there's, there's not no cost, but there's, there's limited cost. So you have this enormous project in front of you. What was the first thing you kind of dug your hands into after the enormity of, of what you had to accomplish settled down? Well, our our history in WRV, and, and, and especially at that point in our evolution as an organization, was we focused mostly on revegetation. And so our first projects were, were really focused on getting vegetation back in Campbell Creek. It had been overgrazed. And so we worked with the ranch to do some fencing. We did, we planted a lot of vegetation because that's what we knew. Uh, it what didn't take long to realize that we were not going to be that successful keeping the cattle out. They are smarter than they look, <laughs> or at least more determined. Determined, yes. <laughs> and the vegetation we planted, they, they enjoyed very much. <laughs> Delicious. Uh, <laughs> yes, except for the wild roses. They were not into the wild roses. Those were successful. So what we needed to do rather than, than fence them out was work with the ranch to change the way they're grazing. And then rather than spending a bunch of resources on planting, uh, you know, the kind of suite of riparian shrubs that we have historically planted on these kind of projects, we need to focus on just getting structural diversity in there. You know, so once you have, you know, willows and cottonwoods, the rest of those things will come in on their own. We don't need to plant snowberries and wild roses and choke cherries. Birds bring those seeds in for us, um, and then it doesn't cost us anything. So the focus shifted towards structural diversity, um, and we found in that process that despite all this extra water, the hydrology wasn't 
actually appropriate for that, that structural diversity. They, there wasn't the connection with this floodplain that would support you know, stands of willow and cottonwood. And so we, we needed to do something about that. And that's where more recent efforts have been focused. You know, we, we do some work in the uplands to reduce the amount of sediment coming down out of these other gullies. But most of our work has been in reconnecting the floodplain to the uh, water table, uh, reducing future incision in the creek so as to maintain that connection where we already have it. So we've used a variety of structures. Some of it comes from a, a, a gentleman by the name of Bill Zedike, who works with the Covera Coalition down in New Mexico. So there's a, a series of structures called induced meanders in which we, uh, in order to maintain connection with the floodplain, or in some cases build a new floodplain where one does not currently exist. Basically, these structures, we, we, we pound wooden stakes into the bed of the creek in the shape, uh, sort of a triangular shape, in order to force the water that has been cutting downwards into cutting laterally instead. And so it's kind of counterintuitive when you're wanting to reduce erosion to basically aim water at an exposed vertical face and cause more erosion. Uh, we get a lot of pushback when we first suggested this uh, from the ranch manager. But once you see how it works, it's, 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 really, it's really remarkable because it's not just one structure. You're not just throwing water at one spot. You, you put one of these things in, um, depending on the grade and the amount of flow and the size of the watershed, it's, it's a series of calculations on you know, how large these meanders and how long these meanders should be. Uh, in this case, we were putting them in about every 65 to 75 feet. And what it does is it reestablishes the, the, you know, the sediment cycle. It's you're, you're eroding on one structure, behind one structure, but because you have created a structure, another structure downstream uh, with an eddy behind it and, and some slow water, you're picking up some of that sediment there and it starts building a sandbar. But then that one is eroding and you're picking up that material further downstream. And because this works as a series, you restart that, that process, that, that riffle, pool, uh, rise, you know, series that you would expect to see in a creek that was disrupted by, by an event. You kickstart it again, and, and it, it starts to actually build a floodplain. Uh, and I was, you know, I was skeptical. I'd never seen this work before when we first started doing it in, in one of these channels that you could literally walk down and, and had you know, in the dry part of the year and you couldn't walk, you had to walk heel to toe in order to, to walk down. And I could reach out my hands and touch the walls on either side. Uh, it was, it was that narrow and in size to going to it in some of these same places. We already have a floodplain that's, you know, 40 feet wide. Well, I like the name. Because I think I'd like an induced meander. I think that sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> we could all use a little more meander in our lives. <laughs> so you were saying that one of the challenges that you ran into was some pushback from the ranch management. Was this something that you kind of consistently saw where in in teaching not just yourselves about the project, you wound up teaching people that were involved in in the land itself and having to having to to work through the challenges of of convincing other people that were involved as to why you'd be doing what you were doing. Yeah, I mean a ranch manager looks at the landscape and the work we're proposing and he they've lost a lot of pasture. It's literally washed downstream. And and here I am telling him, okay, I'm gonna make more of that happen. <laughs> Yeah, the, the um, way to stop it is to create more. Right. And that, yeah. that's a hard pill to swallow. And so it did take some convincing. Um, and we had to build up to it. We we didn't, you know, we wanted to regrade a bunch of head cuts and, and chew up more pasture and, and seed and mulch and do these induced meander installations, all of which, at least initially, are going to, you're going to see some loss of grass. But when you lose, you know, grass that is, you know, in, in this case, sometimes 18, 20 feet above the water table, and you replace it with brand new floodplain of the same dimensions that is right at the water table, and you're growing these 
high protein sedges and rushes, the value to the ranch starts to become apparent. Uh, and then when you pair that with the type of stream monitoring that we've been doing and showing, okay, yes, it does look like we're creating erosion, but look, the sediment load below these treatments is actually lower than it was before we started creating this more visible erosion because of the way the system works. And this is one of those instances where what you're doing that's beneficial for the environment and the ecology of the area is also productive and beneficial for the ranch, you know, and, and gives you these, these multiple benefits for multiple users at the same time. Yeah. I mean, over and over again, we've shown that what's good for the landscape is, is good for the ranch. Um, you know, that's becoming a, a, a common theme in this kind of work in the West where we didn't really understand what we were doing when we were first putting the land to use. Um, we may have made some substantial mistakes, but a culture grew up around those mistakes and was reinforced. And so changing that culture and changing those mindsets is, is enormously important. You know, the ranch manager on the, on the Roberts Ranch is, is, is you know, one of the best partners we've, we've had he has a background in environmental engineering. Um, this is a new ranch manager uh, since we first got started. Um, and really, especially after seeing what we've been accomplishing, has really bought into what we do on, the, on, on their landscapes. You know, the other thing that we have we've started doing in some of the lower risk areas is, is doing these beaver dam analog installations. Oh, and yeah. these are great. You know, beaver and ranchers have not had a, a very agreeable relationship in much of our history because of the beaver and their interest in, you know, manipulating water. Every Each one wants to be the one to make those choices. So it, it's a hard sell to say, you know what, we would like to build these things that do the same thing that beavers do. <laughs> and then we're kind of hoping that maybe some beaver will join it. You know, see how cool it is and how great this space looks and looks homey and, and they'll move in. You know, telling a rancher that is... <laughs> Making them a beaver believer. <laughs> yes. Um, it, it takes some work. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a little counterintuitive. Right. But this is a cow-calf operation on the Roberts Ranch. And <clears throat> when the, the, ca the calves are transitioning from 100% milk diet from their mothers to starting to graze, if they can have just a little bump of high protein during that time, that can make all the difference in, you know, what their end weight is and their, their, you know, their health early on, which affects everything else, uh, you know, and, and profitability and for the ranch. So let me ask then, is the most challenging part of restoration, restoring the environment or restoring people's understanding as to the value of restoration? I mean, they're both challenging, but the second one is more frustrating. Yeah, yeah. I've heard it said um, <laughs> some people raise cattle, but a really good rancher, uh, he raises grass and um, right. getting people into that mindset that, you know, you have to take care of the whole area so that your cows can do well. Like, it's it can be a hard sell. Mm -hmm. it, That's it's not just the rancher; it's everybody downstream that hears <laughs> that I want to grow willows and cottonwoods along this creek that they have water rights to, and you know, and their concern is, but you know, that creek goes almost dry in you know in the fall, and and we don't want to lose any more water. Um, sure. And talking to them about the way these structures store water and and even out, uh, you know, the flow curves and will actually provide more water in the fall, even though there, there is, of course, a net loss if you have additional transpiration. But the key is you're taking the net loss at the peak and you are giving back when it's needed the most. Well, when you're you know, speaking of the water, what have you been monitoring and, and finding in the water itself? Sure. Our, I mean, our primary concern was looking at the amount of suspended sediment in the creek. You know, that's that's why we tackled Campbell Creek to begin with. So, 
Uh, to monitor that, we have been doing grab samples and have a small lab set up at our, our facility in Fort Collins, you know, just to filter out what's in the water, weigh it, and we, we know how much you know, sediment is in a, a, you know, a liter of water. Uh, but then we have to pair that with the amount of flow that the creek has. When we first started doing Campbell Creek uh, monitoring, we, we had a, uh, it's really cute. It's this uh, pygmy meter that you, you know, drop in the water and it measures the flow and then you do a manual cross section. Uh, and we would do this on six different spots along the creek, four times a month. And it was, that's a lot of monitoring work. Mm -hmm. uh, so, <laughs> uh, more recently, uh, with the help of in situ, we've added these level trolls, which along with periodic cross sections to make sure we're still measuring the same thing. We could just get to have a record of how much water there is. And we take you know, the amount of water there is times what we know is suspended in it. And we know how much, how much is still leaving Campbell Valley and where it's coming from and, you know, uh, and where our, you know, our, our work has been rewarding and, and where maybe we need to do more work. We have to answer to those partners that fund our work and those partners that host our work, we also want to be able to demonstrate to our volunteers that what they're doing, you know, that day they spent knee deep in mucky water in Campbell Creek driving posts in with a sledgehammer. Well, that was fun, but they also want to know that it was, that is meaningful and that it, that it had a result that was a benefit to the landscape. Does the availability of data and being able to show what's been done aid you in bringing folks back to, to work on projects in any way? Absolutely. When we finish a project, we send out a thank you email and that thank you email has pictures of them doing their work. And then they may sign up for another project or maybe they don't ever sign up for another project again. Um, we keep sending them recruitment emails saying, you know, this is what's coming up. This is what we have going on. Uh, but then, you know, periodically, I will send out an email to a group of volunteers who participated in a project showing monitoring photos and, or, or results, you know, two years or three years after the fact, especially when they're, you know, striking results. And that brings people back. And I get emails saying, you know, I haven't been back at WRV and I remember that project and that was so much fun. And, and it is really rewarding to hear that it was, that it did make a difference. Mm -hmm. um, I haven't check to see if that person or those people have signed up again, but I would, I would guess it's a motivation. It registered. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. yeah the, the, there was enough of a motivation that they sent me an email. Yeah. Yeah. But for wildlife restoration volunteers, the volunteers themselves are stakeholders in the success of the project because they're putting their time into it. Yeah. Everybody wants to know that they're doing good work if they're doing that work, I mean, either way, whether you're getting paid or not, but it's especially important when you're not getting paid and the reward really is the, you know, the positive outcomes. Right, right. Well, before we turn to Will to talk about uh, some of his projects, uh, can you just tell us where the Campbell Creek project stands right now? Yeah, we are, we're wrapping up implementation phase on this project. We have some more work to do in 21, a few more structures to install and and some maintenance to do on some existing structures. But really after that point, we are done adding new structures to the creek. Going forward, our approach is primarily going to be monitoring. We want to see this trajectory over time. You know, the induced meanders keep working and they keep inducing meander and those grow and the floodplains build and vegetation takes the place of bare dirt. And so the effects of what we do will be ongoing and long-term, and we need to document that. Mm -hmm. um, and as with any restoration, you know, some things will not have worked and we'll need to do make some tweaks and adjustments. And, and so there'll be some of that ongoing as well. But most of it's going to be monitoring and reporting and uh, education, using this as a site where other folks who, need to, who have similar issues, similar problems with their landscapes can come and learn about it. Uh, the ranch itself has transitioned into a ownership into an educational trust, meaning that, you know, it stands there to be a source of learning for um, folks in, in ranching and working in natural resources. We have a lot of visit visitors from CSU who are interested in our work there uh, and its success and, and the struggles we've had um, can be educational to um, a wide variety of, of 
of potential stakeholders. Sure. Well, Will, we touched just briefly on, of course, the terrible and scary impacts to our watershed, given the terrible fires of last year. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about some of your current projects and what's keeping you busy these days. <laughs> um, well, the, the fire response especially um, will be a big old chunk of the spring. Um, as soon as conditions allow uh, for people to get out there and we have a, a prioritized list of streams, yeah, we're going to get out there and we're going to put seed and mulch down on the ground, which will exclude uh, weeds from establishing out there, uh, hold the soil in place, reduce sediment transport next year, and hopefully um, prevent some some major flooding like we've seen previously. And just for um, people who may not be f- that familiar with the area, what are we talking about in terms of area damage um so hype or the cannon peak fire is i think it ended up around two hundred and eighty thousand acres and is now the uh largest wildfire in colorado history combined with the east troublesome and then uh the front range effects of say the calwood fire all of those things um work together in conjunction to uh, to create uh, some p- potentially scary uh, outcomes this next year. Post High Park fire, um, like clockwork, uh, the 2013 floods came. There was flooding all throughout the uh, front range. We, we just want to minimize and mitigate uh, the potential risk for flooding as much as possible. Aside from uh, those projects, we are still actually working on... Um, uh, 2013 flood uh, restoration work. Um, it took many, many years for uh, federal disaster relief funding to come in uh, through the Emergency Watershed Protection Act. We'll be seeing, I think, three or so projects on the uh, the Poudre River uh, this coming year. Um, these are more uh, standard river restoration. Um, the Z-Dyke structures that, that Nate had mentioned, like they work really well uh, if you have time and a bunch of manpower. But if you have critical infrastructure, uh, bridges and so forth, that's um, being threatened, sometimes you just got to get in there with uh, some excavators and really move heavy stuff around and intentionally regrade. Uh, obviously, we don't send volunteers out to uh, run these <laughs> excavators uh, as much as I'm sure they would, they would sign like up to. For. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, we do, uh, we do revegetation work at these sites. Uh, one site was the removal of a uh, diversion structure. Uh, we worked on one site on the, uh, the plat where they installed uh, in-stream weirs and so just rock formations on the outside of a uh, turn to, uh, to slow down stream velocity and capture sediment and build up that stream bank. Um, a bunch of uh, pretty cool uh, uh, spots that, you know, we're trying new stuff. And then um, pending funding, uh, I am trying to do some uh, Z-Dyke work myself. So there's a newly acquired uh, natural area with the uh, city of Loveland. It was... 40 years, I think, run as a uh, dryland wheat crop, uh, intentionally plowed uh, through these headwater streams. Um, it's never critical enough to, to get all the funding to, you know, get those excavators out and everything. But cost effectiveness of uh, getting volunteers out and installing these log check dams and induced meandering structures and maybe some primitive rock structures out there might be a new way to um uh, proactively restore front range headwaters that that do end up affecting uh, city uh, water supply. And Will, I think this is one of those things that's so interesting that for a lot of people that might not be quite as familiar with with the impact that wildfires can have on natural water supply and on on urban areas, how do you how do you quantify how much of an impact and how long of an impact that can be? As I mentioned, the uh, emergency watershed protection funding is still uh, doing restoration projects on the Pooter and on the Big Thompson and on the Platte. Uh, and that's um, seven, eight years later now. Uh, how? What year is it? <laughs> um, 2020 but, is uh, over. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, it is it is hugely impactful. Aside from just burning the vegetation and, you know, that that 
fibrous root structure that holds everything into place. Um, the fires also go through and um, uh, various plants will have uh, waxy substances built up. And uh, when you burn the plants, those waxes might not fully combust. And then you get a hydrophobic layer where all of this, you know, we get one major rainfall event and you can just see hillsides sloughing off. And once you get down, you know, to some of the more major streams, it doesn't actually take a whole lot to uh, scour out uh, bridges and roads. And um, I know Lyons, for example, in 2013, like the one road going up uh, into the valley there was torn apart and communities were, were stranded. And and then that cascaded all the way down, uh, affecting uh, places as far out as Johnston and beyond tearing apart bridges and roads and so forth. And um, the insidious thing is, you know, once you start scouring so much, um, I mean, you you uh, flood um, all of our water infrastructure mm-hmm. um, and, and, you know, uh, water supply uh, takes a major hit. But then you're also getting, you know, hazardous materials uh, torn up and then uh, deposited into the stream and sent, sent down. Uh, so it, it has multiple uh, impacts on communities in the area. So Nate, Will's talked a bit about how the Cameron Peak fire will affect his work going forward. What will be the impact to yours? Um, It will just shift our focus. You know, our focus generally is uh, we we find trails that are, that have been not well built to begin with um, that are degraded and rebuild them or reroute them in more sustainable ways, and then do restoration uh, on on the trails as they you know that, that we left behind. Our focus will be to um, stabilize some of these trails that are, you know, they are necessary scars through the landscape and can be constructed in such a way that they don't cause the type of damage that a you know an unsustainable trail can. You know we submitted for funding last year and just said, we don't know what it's going to be yet. We, we don't know what the necessity will be in 21 for trail work around the Cameron Peak fire, but we know there will be some. And that was back when Cameron Peak was 80,000 acres. Now it's over 200,000 acres. And I don't think we have enough funding coming in to do all the work that would need to be done on the trails. So our, our focus right now is trying to prioritize where to best put the limited funds and limited volunteer expertise and resources to best use to reduce the impact of our trails on our watershed. In terms of monitoring, is it is the the, the impact in terms of proving and, and providing a project to be successful uh, primarily coming from photographs or work with with other agencies and and partners? What's the thing that you wind up going back to? Photo points uh, are a fan favorite for like general volunteers, um, but WRV also has a specific monitoring program, uh, and so they'll take various uh, sites that we've worked on and kind of adopt them. And they'll go back and they'll run transects, and you know they'll lay out quads and figure out uh, plant density and and species presence and uh, and the whole gamut. the The problem with monitoring is always everybody wants to fund new projects, but nobody wants to fund like follow up on something that you know they feel is done. Um, so our monitoring program is relatively small, given a. Uh, uh, compared to the the size of our other uh, uh, programs and everything, but uh, we have some very smart people that that go out there and you know just really love doing stats on plants and <laughs> <laughs> and good on them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> yeah, I had a a question tied to that funding piece because it sounds like. You never, you don't quite know. Like it's sort of just in time funding. How does how does that work when you you're not quite sure whether you're going to be able to do something that you think is absolutely necessary to do? 
that that is our life this time of year um just (laughs) scratching our heads and trying to figure out you know the art of best guesses for what's coming up in the year because you know we're dependent on other people and and their budget cycles and so on and so if they don't know what their budget is they certainly can't promise us anything in particular um so it's it's really it comes down to just how important it feels to us and then if it's really important work um or you know the the monitoring projects that we've got things like that uh we'll just kind of get the ball rolling and cross our fingers and hope that the funding kind of falls in line afterwards has um has COVID had much of an impact in both in terms of your funding and your access to volunteers <laughs> what's that been like? um little less for funding actually uh interestingly um i think covid galvanized our um volunteers and our supporters um i think we've actually taken in record donations this year um but in terms of uh, actual projects um that was interesting to say the least i think nate was out there on campbell creek um uh, right out the gate and he basically just got some willows and said all right one family at a time dropped them in the water and said you know go have fun um <laughs> I had another river restoration project that you know we had priced out and planned for like one day maybe two and we had to split it up into uh, nine different project days um just because of uh, group size limits. So it's been, it's been an adventure, but um, we're, we're certainly getting there and we kept on plugging away at things. <laughs> Nate, do you have anything was, to add to that? I mean, WRV was the first organization of our kind in Colorado to actually get people on the ground. Once we realized what the, this pandemic meant for our population. Um, and it's because we have an uh, incredible board who recognizes the value of what we do and and has an understanding of the risks and took the time to to evaluate those and gave us permission to safely run projects. Um, not everybody had the ability to do that. Many of our our partner organizations weren't able to get work done in 2020, um, but uh, we were fortunately flexible and had motivated staff to, you know, we could have all sat around and, you know, collected unemployment and, um, yeah. and for some of us, we would have gotten paid more actually <laughs> sit around and collect unemployment. Um, but we made it happen and our volunteers saw that and, and made it happen. And our funders saw what we were doing and, and helped us beyond in some cases what they were committed to. So this was an amazing year for WRV. We didn't quite get as much, work done is what we would have in a non-COVID year. We just couldn't. We, we couldn't get the size of groups out that we, we normally would, and we have finite ability to get staff out there to, to supervise them. But I can't say enough about the people, the volunteers and, and, the, and the staff and our board and our, you know, the, the conservation community that supports us and our partners for making it happen in what, in, for some people, was an impossible year to get work like this done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, when especially mm-hmm. when you see how long this has been going on, to think that that could have all been time lost, you know, that's amazing. I would just like to say it was absolutely worth it to um, multiple times on these projects. Uh, people would come up like mask on, but kind of tearing up and saying, you know, they haven't been able to go out and see people and, and do things for months at a time. Mm-hmm. And it was just I think it was very healthful for a lot of people. We had waiting lists all season long for almost every one of our projects. Wow. Nate, can you tell us a little bit about how you got into this work? Oh, man. You have another two hours? <laughs> um, I had a long, convoluted, I would call it scenic uh, path into the restoration world. And it wasn't intentional. I, I, I was out of high school and even in high school, in school to become a commercial pilot. Oh, um, and that was that was my intent, and I went through three years of flight school, and then realized I was too tall to be a pilot, <sighs> and nobody was going to hire me. Wow! And well, that was devastating. But in hindsight, I'm really glad. Um, most of my 
classmates who did that aren't doing it anymore anyway. 9-11 and other events or just personal health or, or having families, it's not the career for, it's not very good for, for having a family life. So anyway, I was pretty devastated and bounced around a little bit, lived overseas for a while, uh, was a ski bum for a bit in Colorado, looked for something more meaningful. And, and what I found was wilderness therapy. There was a group on the Western Slope that that took kids from juvenile corrections out in the woods and kind of tortured them for two months at a time <laughs> in the middle of nowhere, um, but in all the best ways. And I had a had worked for a psych hospital during college. It was just a you know a college job, and so I had background in, in that. And but one of the things we did with these kids was do service projects. Every other week, we did some kind of service project, whether it was, you know, fixing fences around sensitive areas or building trails or uh, cutting back invasive species. And, it, you know, in the two years I was doing that, that that was kind of what these kids really needed. It was it gave them a, a sense of accomplishment to do this thing, to learn how to do this task and to do it well and then see at the end of the day that, you know, there was something they had accomplished that that meant something because I, you know, I had to do community service once when I was a kid and they made me move a pile of broken concrete from one side of a parking lot to another. And then the next poor kid had to move it back. And and that was community (laughs) service. Um, So what I saw was this, you know, this thing that these kids could give back and feel good about. and, And I really loved it. And so I decided I was going to go to school for, ecological restoration. And I found that CSU had a program in rangeland ecology. Uh, They now since have a program in ecological restoration, but they didn't at the time. And so I I moved to the front range and uh, decided to go to school at CSU. Um, Worked for Youth Conservation Corps during the summers, studied at CSU, and then in my final year was hired by WRV to take on this project at Campbell Valley. Will, let me turn to you. Um, tell us a little bit about how you you came to this work. Sure. Uh, so out of high school, um, I started studying computer and electrical engineering and uh, uh, did not enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> and um, uh, I ended up uh, taking off and, and leaving that college um, while I was just figuring out what it is I wanted to do. And uh, this is, I was growing up out in uh, like the Virginia area. And um, that was just around the time I started getting into uh, backpacking and camping and being outside with some of my friends. And it was, um, it was about two and a half weeks into a 21 day uh, open country backpacking trip in the um, San Juans here in Colorado that I just got gobsmacked on the top of a mountain looking around just like how beautiful and incredible like this this place I get to live in uh, is and I decided right then and there that um, I was going to move to Colorado and um, learn to steward uh, the world that I had learned to love so much Um, so I went back to uh, Virginia and I sat down with my parents and said hey mom dad uh I think I'm going to move to Colorado. And uh, they said, oh, okay. Uh, when do you think you'll go? And I said, uh, Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I packed up what I could into a tiny little Honda Prelude and uh, just started driving out. Found a roommate uh, uh, in the car on the way uh, to Colorado. And then uh, I worked in established residency for a couple of years and wound up studying at uh, CSU as well. Um, actually, same program and uh, same timing as Nate, although we never met. Oh, wow. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. And um, yeah, after, uh, after graduating, I did a little bit of travel as well. And then I wound up doing forestry work in uh, Taos, New Mexico, and then uh, eventually got hired for a... Um, uh, ecological consulting firm in Chicago and um, did that for a little bit. I uh, got tired of working 80 hour weeks. And uh, so my wife and I just started uh, looking for jobs back in Colorado where we met and uh, wound up at WRV. As you look to the future, are you optimistic that you will have the the resources that you need to do 
the important work that needs to be done. It sounds like um, the volunteers are there. Will the money be there? And where does it come from? Well, we're always stressed out about that. That's provides a lot of sleepless nights. Um, yeah, I mean, in this community, the volunteers will, will keep coming um, whenever there's a need. Um, funding is always a challenge. We, we start out just about every season behind and trying to find ways to catch up and looking for new funding sources and, and, and ways to leverage existing funding sources. Most of our funding is grant funded. You write grants that are federal and state, local grant sources. We get funding from partner organizations, corporate funding sources, private donations, uh, wherever we can scrape together the funding to do the work that, that needs to be done. And there's never enough. And we have just gotten very good at doing the work we do with, you know, on a shoestring budget and trying to, to make it stretch. I think there will be quite a bit of funding uh, coming in uh, post wildfires. That said, I mean, just the sheer extent of damaged area here, uh, there could never be enough to fix everything. So it really becomes an exercise of, you know, figuring out what we can get and then um, doing our best to prioritize. And we have that, we have funding to do two volunteer projects on trails in the burn area. That's what, what I what we applied for in September of last year. Um, so we've actually engaged a, a CSU natural resource class to do an analysis for us um, based on what we know of the severity of the burn, based on what we know, uh, what kinds of trail conditions uh, are not conducive to sustainability. And they're going to help us prioritize to, to figure out where to best put that time. So CSU has, has been an incredible partner in that way. Is there something that you're, as far as projects go, that you're really looking forward to next year or in the, the coming years, something that really gets you out of bed in the morning? Uh, anytime I'm in the forest, I'm happy. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good answer. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to echo Will on that one. I, we are so lucky to have a, a way to spend our time in, in a somewhat profitable way that gets us out and our, our you know, our feet in the water and our you know, walking through trees and moving rocks. And we're the luckiest people on earth. I get up, you know, wanting to make this happen over and over again. Oh, that's great. Well, we're lucky to have WRV, no doubt about it. And people can learn more about your organization at your website. Do you want to share that and how people can find out more? Sure. It's WLRV.org. You can see a full list of projects. Um, and um, if you go onto the main webpage, uh, there's a link at the top right for volunteering now. And you can get on a, um, an email list uh, and get updates for uh, projects once we, we do have everything set up for the year. Terrific. Yeah, and it's a fantastic site with photos of the projects you guys have talked about. Like you said, ways people can find to volunteer or donate to the work that you guys do. Like Helen said, we're extremely lucky in Northern Colorado to have your organization. Yep, terrific. So Nate, Will, thank you very much. It's been a great conversation. We've loved hearing about your work and the opportunities and challenges that lie ahead. And we wish you the very best and a successful 21. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for hosting us today and for all your support. Thank you all for listening. This is Aquapod, brought to you by In Situ. Please subscribe to Aquapod wherever you listen to podcasts and check us out on insitu.com. That's in-situ.com. You can also find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This episode was produced by Helen Taylor, Eric Robinson, and Lauren Ryan with a big assist from Josiah Holmland and Versa Studio in beautiful Colorado. We look forward to bringing you more water monitoring stories from the field. And until then, take care out there.